And now I want to invite you to move forward in the story of the early believers through the events of Pentecost, when God's promise is indeed fulfilled and the spirit comes upon them in a dramatic and a powerful way. And as a consequence of that, of course, there are some immediate events as Peter begins to preach in the streets, quoting great reams of Old Testament prophecy and the crowds experience a quite miraculous reception as each one hears the word of God being spoken in their own heart language. And then there is this explosion of growth and life in the early church as 3000 people join its ranks. And so we can see on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit is well and truly at work. But I've invited us to read a little bit further because after the dust has somewhat settled on this explosive experience of the Holy Spirit, we read something of the longer term impact of the Holy Spirit's presence within the lives of this emerging Christian community. And that's what we read about in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. Now, this is a community that is in transition. They might not have described themselves in those terms and they might not have even really yet begun to wrestle with the formalities and the realities of that. But they were having to come to terms with a very different world. For them, of course, what had changed was not so much the world around them. In fact, as we discovered on the day of Ascension, one of the things that they struggled with was that God hadn't changed the world around them in a way that they perhaps anticipated and expected. But they were becoming different people in that world. Their experience of Jesus had changed from being physically present with them in the flesh to being present with them through his spirit working within them. Their understanding of their religious heritage was having to change in that world as they tried to work out which bits of it were informing their new identity as a new creation, as one of the later writers of the New Testament puts it, and, and which bits really they needed to, to leave behind, so to speak. Their understanding of God was beginning to change. Their understanding of what it meant to be God's people was beginning to change and they were changing. Because they were being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit within their lives. Now, inevitably, when we face change, we go through a process of evaluation. We start to look at our traditions and our habits and our priorities and we begin to ask what really matters here. And that is something that becomes increasingly evident in the life of the early church. A few chapters later, we read of how they gather in Jerusalem because there's been some controversy in the church in Antioch about whether or not uh, people need to be or men need to be circumcised before they can become Christians. But in effect, the question that they are debating is what really matters. Which bits of our religious heritage are absolutely non-negotiable and what do we need to let go of in order to fully embrace this new identity that we now have in Christ in order to become this new international community that Jesus is turning us into. And those discussions and debates were often hard fought and not always easy. And I sense that perhaps we find ourselves in a similar place at the moment because our world is changing and our world has changed and I don't think it's just because our religious activities have been stopped in their tracks although I do think that's played quite a big part in it 
because that has forced us to begin to ask ourselves questions. Take something as simple, for example, as as worshipping God. How do you worship God? Well, the unconscious answer that I suspect most of us have harboured is, well, you worship God by going along on a Sunday morning and joining in. That's how churches tend to do worship. Now, if any of us were challenged about that, we would almost certainly turn around and say, no, there's a lot more to worship than that. But that's sometimes the problem with routine. It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't force us to stop and think. And so we just unconsciously carry on doing what we do and unconsciously begin to inhabit that reality. We just turn up and do it. But then we were forced to stop. And we were forced to ask ourselves, well, if I can't worship God by turning up on Sunday morning and joining in, how do I worship God? And many of us, yeah, we've struggled with that. But we have also learn to worship God in new ways. And I'm only using this as an example, but as we discover new ways of worshipping God, so we discover new perspectives and perhaps see things that we didn't used to see before, to the point where we then end up asking ourselves, well, how essential is it that we gather in the way that we've always done? Now, please don't mishear me. I am not covertly advocating that we simply abandon all our routines, but I'm recognising the journey of thought that many of us have been on. We are learning to ask ourselves questions. And as I will say throughout these talks, it seems to me that the whole thrust of the Acts of the Apostles is the early church's discovery that being a follower of Jesus was not a matter of simply turning up and joining in. It was not a matter of creating some safe haven of religious security, but learning to inhabit whatever realities confronted them and consciously seeking to do that as followers of Jesus, whether we're talking about worship or whether we're talking about anything else. And what we have at the end of Acts chapter 2 is a community of new believers anointed and overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit seeking to make sense of what it means to be followers of Jesus in the midst of their current reality. And for them, there is no script to follow. There is no established tradition. And of course, they lived lives which would have involved all kinds of activities and roles and responsibilities. But what are the things that the writer of Acts pulls out? as the markers of their identity as followers of Jesus. Well, he highlights four devotions that mark them out. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and they devoted themselves to prayer. And it seems as we carry on reading that those four devotions had five consequences. They were filled with awe. Their experience of being followers of Jesus was awesome. They were united with one another. They were held together as one. They became selfless and generous to the point where no one was in need and no sacrifice seemed to be too great in order to make sure that no one was in need. And they wanted to be together. They met daily and people wanted to be part of it. They found favour in the eyes of people and people were added to their number daily. 
And one of the things that I can't help noticing as I look at this summary of the early life of the church is, is that while lockdown has prevented us from perpetuating many of our religious activities, many of the things that are described here have started to happen, both within church communities, but more significantly, perhaps, across communities in general. We are seeing people sharing and being drawn closer together. We are seeing those in need being prioritised and people worried to make sure that no one is in need and everyone is cared for. We are seeing community emerging. And what is our narrative at the moment? How can we help this to continue and grow or when can we start singing hymns again? What is the song that we should be singing in this new land that is emerging. And it strikes me that the church of Acts chapter two was a church that wasn't too concerned about where and when it met. They, they seemed content to meet in the public spaces of the temple courts or in one another's homes. They didn't seem too concerned about getting together on Sunday because they were meeting with each other every day. What seemed to matter to them was not when or where they met, but why. And it seems to me that while they did meet for prayer and to engage with the apostles teaching, they also met so they could share their possessions and check that no one was in need and to break bread and to share food. And these are not listed in a scale of priority. Each one seems to be as important as the other. There was not this kind of divide between the religious activities and the everyday activities. They lived out a whole these were people from many different places, people who spoke many different languages, people who would go on to live out their faith in many different places and cultures. So these devotions are the hallmarks of their common song that they will be singing in the midst of all of these diverse realities. This is what is going to define them as they live out their faith in so many different places and so many different contexts. And as we continue to wonder what kind of land we will find ourselves singing the Lord's song in in future days, the simple truth is we don't know. We don't know what things are going to be like. But what we can focus on is the song that we are called to sing. So I want to invite us to look at these four devotions and to reflect on how we might live them out in our new normal, whatever that new normal might be. And I've chosen that word devotion deliberately because it isn't a word that we tend to use very often in our contemporary world. But by using it, it kind of reminds us and it does us good to remember that they really did take this stuff seriously. They were devoted, first of all, to the apostles teaching. They were hungry to hear about Jesus. And let's remember that the apostles teaching was not some carefully recorded set of beliefs and doctrines. All of that stuff came later. None of the New Testament was written at this point in the church's history. The apostles teaching were the tales and stories of a group of people who had been with Jesus. They were a living testimony to the presence of Christ in the lives and the everyday experience of people who had encountered him. 
And I sense that we need to be a church that is looking for encounters with Christ and sharing the stories of encounters with Christ and perhaps be prepared to encounter Christ in unexpected places and perhaps even to believe that unexpected people might encounter the living Jesus and have room in our shared life for them to tell their story. Like I said, they were a church that was hungry to hear about Jesus. And the second hallmark, it seems to me, the second devotion is that they were devoted to fellowship. Now, fellowship has become one of those words that we tend to bandy around in religious circles quite a lot these days. We might describe our meetings as fellowships. Some local church communities describe themselves as fellowships. We even have songs of fellowship. But I sense that then again, there is this danger that we become so familiar with a term like this, so used to attaching it to the things that we do, that we forget what it truly means. And this particular narrative leaves us with no doubt what fellowship means. In fact, much of what follows is dedicated to describing this life of fellowship. They were strong and in deep rooted relationship. They sold property and possessions to make sure that no one was in need. They didn't just share their leftovers or buy an extra tin of soup to leave in the food bank box. They disposed of serious assets and they did so not to fund religious projects, but to ensure that no one was in need. You know, we've talked a lot in recent days about the things that government legislation or COVID lockdown has stopped us from doing. But it does strike me that before we complain too much, we might do well to remember that there are an awful lot of things that we read about in the New Testament that we've quite happily managed to stop doing without any government's help. In fact, it seems to me that COVID-19 has helped us start doing as much as of what we see happening in the early churches as what it stopped us from doing. And then they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, this is an interesting phrase for us because it obviously conveys some sense of the activities of worship. In fact, we sometimes describe our communion services as the breaking of bread. But we recognise that this was more than a worship ritual. It goes on to say they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And, and again, if you take a look back to the words of Psalm 137, you may remember that those psalm writers and musicians had been heavily criticised by the Old Testament prophets because their worship rituals were just that, empty rituals rehearsed in the midst of a society that had pretty much abandoned the principles of justice that are intended to be the hallmarks of God's community. The kind of society in which those Old Testament worship bands were worshipping was one where people did go hungry, where the poor were not taken care of, where there were many people who were in need. And I think it's deliberate that we can't really tell whether what is being described here by the term breaking of bread is another aspect of the quality of their relationships or their gatherings of worship. Because it seems to me that whether we're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, our worship in God's economy is something that needs to reflect our lives and be lived out in our lives. And, and the two things should be pretty much indistinguishable. I sense that God is calling us to be a church that is less concerned about the routines and the rotors of organised worship and more concerned that our message is consistently lived out in every aspect of our being. 
And then the fourth devotion was a devotion to prayer. Now, I want to say more about prayer in the third of these talks. So I really just want to set the context here. Now, few of us would argue that as a people of God, we should be devoted to prayer. But again, prayer is one of those words that can mean a number of different things. Those of us who regularly put together acts of worship will often talk about prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, prayers of intercession, prayers of petition. And so I could go on. And we quite legitimately hold to the idea that prayer can have many aspects and many dimensions. So as we recognise the early believers' commitment to prayer, it seems to me that we also need to ask a deeper question alongside that. How did they pray? What did they understand by this word prayer? And in particular, I want to suggest that prayer needs to be more than getting together to tell God what we want him to do about things. Again, on the day of ascension, Jesus kind of blew that out the water when he said, no, I'm not going to dance to your tune. I'm not going to tell you when the kingdom of Israel will be restored. Prayer needs to be the means by which we are led and guided by God, particularly in this new and emerging land. If we are going to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, it seems important that we are clear about which song it is that the Lord wants us to sing. Now, as I said earlier, these four devotions have some very positive consequences and you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to go through them all now. But I do want to highlight one of them. And it appears in verse 47 at the very end of the chapter where it says this. They enjoyed the favour of all people and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. The land may have been strange, their faith untested, their community still in the early stages of formation. But they were a growing church and they were a growing church because they were an attractive church. And it seems to me that they were an attractive church because they were devoted to the right things, which to me raises a somewhat unavoidable question. What are we devoted to? And if we are going to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. It seems to me that like those early believers, we need to be devoted to the stories of the living Jesus being told and being shared. We need to be devoted to fellowship, to living out the life of community that God has called us to live. We need to be devoted to the breaking of bread, to sharing in worship in ways that reflects the realities of who we are and worship that equips us to live as the people of God. And we need to be devoted to prayer, prayer that listens to God's voice and enables us to follow in the direction that God leads. So what are we devoted to as we seek to sing the Lord's song in this strange land?